Radio Waves Radio Waves Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. Today is Thursday the 22nd of December 2016 and we're going to take a summer break here. Our summer break will extend over January and will return in February 2017. My name is Brendan O'Brien and this week's episode is Solange Cunin puts Cuberider in orbit and some Australian students are very happy. Each week we have a special guest from the fields of radio astronomy and optical astronomy. We'll have a news roundup. And we'll be crossing to Tver in Russia again to speak with Dr. Nadezhda Sherbakov. And this week she's following up on stellar evolution and explaining the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Solange. Hey, Brendan. How are you? Very good, thank you. It gives me great pleasure today to speak with Solange Kunin, who is the CEO of CubeRider. Now, Solange, where was the rainforest where you grew up in? And tell us how you became interested in science and space. I grew up on a property on the far north coast of New South Wales, just outside of Grafton towards the coast. So the big major river out there is called the Clarence River, and it kind of forks and rejoins again and creates an island in the middle. And so I grew up on a property on that island. Lovely. (laughs) And you went to school at Grafton then? Yeah, so I had an interesting education experience uh, growing up. So, I mean, my pri- I was one of six people in my grade at primary school. I went to a little regional primary school that I think for many years was in, was, was in you know, trouble for, well, not trouble, but, you know, it, it was almost shut down a couple of times because it was too small. And then I went to South Grafton High School for most of the rest of my schooling. Um, so I did a combination of distance education and and advanced classes at school. And you are already focused on science and space? Yes, it's interesting. I was I was quite young when I decided that I wanted to be an astrophysicist. I, uh, now that I've employed an astrophysicist, I kind of know what they do now. <laughs> I know how I did it, what I thought that meant when I was five. Uh, but I really decided that's what I wanted to be, apparently. I was quite adamant about it. And then, so I, I, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure why. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time outside stargazing. We lived in a very dark place in the world, out of town. So, you know, the, the Milky Way was very very, very bright. It was almost the sky was pale blue as opposed to black where we lived. Oh, you're very so lucky. I, guess, I also live under dark skies. Now, then you went on and did your BSc and your Bachelor of Engineering at the University of New South Wales, and that's still continuing. How's it going? Well, yeah, it's kind of... Well, I haven't really finished that those degrees. I started CubeRider in my fourth year, and once you've got, you know, a certain amount of schools involved and a, a team putting it all together, you kind of... It takes priority. I can imagine. <laughs> so I haven't... 
I, I did four years of maths and aerospace engineering and I don't know I, I'm, I'm now you know feel like I'm using my my degree in a kind of a weird way but I feel like I'm having a much greater impact outside of it now and and in a practical way than if I was just to go back and study full-time Fantastic. So now you're 23 and you've set up CubeRider with University of Technology Sydney student Sebastian Chow. What is CubeRider? Yeah, so CubeRider is basically, well, we're, we're an education company and, and our really key goal and focus is to inspire learning um, in science and technology, engineering and maths. The way that we do that is is through using the same the same element that inspired myself and Sebastian, and that is space. So as as young people who who grew up in areas that weren't very receptive to science and, and technology, we were able to find our way down that path through our love and, and enthusiasm for space. So we we've kind of turned that in an, into an entire education program, which means we can share that the our passion and our enthusiasm for space with all of Australia's high school students. Fantastic. Uh, now, I've done a bit of background reading on CubeRider, and the, a question that springs to mind is, how did you manage to get the 16 countries involved with the International Space Station <laughs> to agree with you sending a payload up to the ISS? <laughs> you have done your research. So we, we have, we're very fortunate to have amazing partners in the US, uh, namely um, Nenorax and, and their education dreamer. Yes. And, and so they've been a major partner in getting us through all those international hurdles uh, in getting the, the approval, through the approval process to actually get something up to the International Space Station. So Nenorax routinely sends things up to the space station. And so we've been able to, they've, they've helped us a lot in that process. Very good. Now, I've also seen the paperwork involved in getting an Australian Overseas Launch Certificate. It's quite comprehensive. How long did that take you? Our launch certificate is something that we really pride ourselves on. It's not a particularly easy piece of paperwork to get through, but we managed to do it in five months. <laughs> Just record timing. If there was a Guinness World Record for that kind of thing, I'm sure we would we would be in it. No, we, we and I, I attribute that to the the really some fantastic support from the government agency that that issues those certificates. They they were fantastic in guiding us through the process and helping us. And I, I think from from working in the aerospace industry to now having gone through that process, I, I think the government's actually taken on a lot of the criticism and feedback that the industry has given, and now they're absolutely supportive and, and helpful through that process. So it's it's like it's still not easy and it's time consuming, <laughs> but it's it's better. It's it's a lot better. Yes, and it's also kudos to them. If they can demonstrate that they can work effectively with industry, then it makes them look good too. Then looking good in this situation is a byproduct of them actually being good. So it's warranted and earned in this, in this occasion. Yeah, point very well taken. So you're not only passionate about space science, but also education is a huge focus for you. You've involved 54 schools and a lot of students with their teachers designed designing hardware, writing Python scripts and planning a hundred odd experiments that we conducted on the ISS. Tell us a little bit about some of those experiments. 
Yes, I'll first explain the program. So we've gotten a sensor board uh, approved to, to go to space and to be used on the International Space Station by NASA, and we send a replica of what actually goes up to space to every single classroom. And so it's on this piece of hardware that, that students are learning to code and do data analytics and learning the entire scientific method and engineering method. And, Beautiful. And that's, that basically gives them that real-life experience and that practical experience of an engineering project. And so this year, is our first year of running the program, we are in around 60 schools, and they kind of blew us away. <laughs> yep. they, we, we didn't really give any uh, limitations other than the physical limitations of the, the sensors that, that were sent up. And we, let's, we, said, we told them they could do whatever they wanted. And they did. And it's the most amazing and astounding thing you've, you've ever seen. We've got students measuring, seeing if they can detect time dilation over the course of a month. We've got students who have hacked up the camera to be a Geiger counter to measure high energy particles from the sun. We've got students who have created algorithms to map the data they collect in space to the to musical notes to create a song. Oh. They've really just done an amazing job of, you know, we're, we're living in the ideas boom and the innovation nation and I feel like what these students have created and what they've done with these sensors is really a testament to that. And that echoes what we say here at Astrophys. Here we say that great art is disciplined and great science is creative. It looks like you're doing both there. Mm -hmm. So with those experiments, how are the students going to access the data generated by the experiments? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So we're situated on the International Space Station for this mission, which means we're very fortunate enough to be able to use the International Space Station communication lines. So we get a downlink from the International Space Station of all the students' data every second day. And then what we do is we just process that a little bit and send it off to the students for them to complete their experiments. Sounds so every, beautiful. Yes, yeah, so every second day we get the data back, and then we're going to try and do an upload as well. So it's all through uh, radio technology or all the communications, basically, with satellites. Awesome. And so you've got a, a dedicated frequency that you work on? No, so like, like, like I said, we use the International Space Station, so it all goes through NASA first. Excellent. Okay, so you've designed the Sagan sensor hardware. Can you tell us a little bit about how big it is? Later we'll give people the link so that they can go and interrogate the CubeRider website, but tell us about the Sagan sensor hardware. Sure. So we, we took inspiration from the standard CubeSat specifications. And so CubeSats, if you're not aware, are little microsatellites that come in 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter cubes. Yep. Um, hence the name CubeSat. And you can basically stack them together like Lego. And so you get one unit, which is your standard 10 by 10 by 10, where you get two units or three units, or, you know, it just grows and grows as much as you want or need. Uh, so we're, we're, we've got that 10 by 10 centimeter configuration, and we're in a 1.5U sized unit, 1.5 units, so it's 10 by 10 square and 15 centimeters long. So inside that, we've got the sensor module, which has a dozen different sensors, and so they include things like UV radiation, 
an IMU, which has like a gyroscope, a magnetometer, an accelerometer. We've got a camera, a real-time clock, a bunch of thermometers and barometers, and all that kind of stuff. They're all caught sensors, space-rated caught sensors. Um, so they're, they're all kinds of all the kinds of things that you could that you know you'll, you'll find and useful here on Earth and in space. It means that working in the classroom for six months is 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 a completely boring. <laughs> and because <laughs> that's what that's that's what we've got to remember, right? When it, that this is you know classroom science as well. And so all of those sensors are placed on a custom PCB. And then they're powered by and controlled with a Raspberry Pi. So Raspberry Pi is just a commercial piece of hardware. It's a microcontroller that's, you know, one of the more popular uh, hobbyist microcontrollers available on the market, along with um, Arduinos. So it's along the same lines as Arduinos and Edison's. And so it's quite, it's quite simple technology. It's one of the things for the space industry is when something works, you stick with it. <laughs> So the tech, so so, uh, so the tech is robust and it's trialed and tested. We send one of those, you know, satellite hardware kits out to every single school in the program, and so students can learn to code on that. And they learn to collect data and draw useful conclusions from that data, like we would as an ordinary scientist here on Earth. And then the whole time that they're doing that, they're creating and testing an experiment for space. So they'll have to write a hypothesis and um, some justification as to why that what they're doing is going to produce something useful and all that kind of stuff. Very clever, I think, using that open source software and hardware. Yeah, the I mean, the, when you're in an education program, there's no need to be uh, exclusive with those with those kinds of things, and it just means that it'll be much, it'll be available to so many other teachers and students in the going on into the future if we keep it nice and easy. I mean, we, we've had to develop our own like custom libraries and things like that to be able to deal with the sensors because they're all like permanently placed. But that's uh, that's about the extent of it. So other than that, they're learning good old fashioned Python in an embedded environment so it should come out as a budding mechatronic engineers fantastic solange can you tell us a little bit about the excitement of the launch that was the happiest day of my life launch day (laughs) (laughs) so launch day we had a fantastic party with three schools and around 70 students and uh, members of industry, business professionals, people from NASA and universities and CSIRO, all, ca- all corporates, so everyone came down and were in the same room and it was just buzzing. Uh, there were, we had our partners brought in virtual reality sets so that students and, and students and adults alike actually <laughs> could, uh, could experience uh, what it's like to go out into space using some astronaut training software that's being developed uh, by some guys down in Melbourne called Earthlight. They're fantastic. And we had, you know, like ice cream being made there and it was just so much energy and, and you could really see from the suits in the room that they were just feeding off the energy and the enthusiasm that these kids had. It was a really wonderful event and we kind of we used that, that event as a way to celebrate the achievement that these students had because, of course, they are the first Australians to run experiments on the station, beating, of course, the members from CSIRO and the universities who attended, which is kind of funny. But they, you know, so the, the day was all about them. It was really wonderful 
wonderful to see the whole community get get there and and celebrate and get behind these students who had achieved but it, it achieved in in a field that we don't often celebrate here in Australia. Uh, so that was a great way to start launch day, of course. <laughs> A little bit of a high from that, just being able to talk with all the teachers and students about their experience, and it was it was just amazing to have everyone in the one room. And then we actually had the rocket launch at twelve thirty in the morning on Friday night, and and we all the whole Q Rider team sat up together and watched it together, and it was very emotional. Every, everything that we've all worked for in the last twelve months was on that rocket. We were just waiting with our noses touching the screen for that rocket to leave sight. <laughs> <laughs> and there were many a, many a tear shed once it was up. Oh, I can imagine. Sounds just so fantastic, though. Very lucky students, and I'm sure that they'll also be tomorrow's scientists. Now, I've got a couple of additional questions. How did you get the Sagan sensor over to the Tagashima Space Center? Sure. So originally we were booked onto a SpaceX rocket. We were on the CRS-10, which is a resupply mission to the station. And in between CRS-9 and CRS-10, uh, SpaceX actually had a failure on the launch pad, uh, which was in the news actually. I think Facebook lost a couple of satellites in that and, and some other companies. And so but they, they did some damage to the launch pad. And whilst it turns out that the damage was that bad we really need to work within the school year to make sure we get that the maximum possible impact on students and so we asked our partners Nenorax if they could kindly organize for us to uh, be moved over to the Japanese rocket which scrapes in just before the end of the school year and so they've actually had our payload since September or even earlier maybe it's kind of funny people have been asking me what we do now and it's kind of like we've had we've had to move on to the next thing since we handed it over uh, <laughs> it's all through uh, and it, we really do a big big thank you to our partner Nanorax for, for um, being so understanding and, and, and NASA as well for being so understanding of you know who we're working with here and, and the confines of the school year here in Australia because of course it's different over there so it's kind of it's actually flipped so if, it, if we had been American or from the Northern Hemisphere it would have been fine <laughs> Yeah, the whole thing sounds like a very complex problem-solving experiment at every level. Now, your payload is up on the International Space Station now. Is the next step for the astronauts to unpack your payload and plug it into the appropriate port on the ISS? Sure. So there's a couple of steps to to the whole space mission, which I'm sure you all know. It is rocket science. (laughs) So after it actually launches, that's just the hurdle number one. So that happened on Friday the 9th. Now tonight, Tuesday the 13th, is when it actually docks with the International Space Station. So for the last couple of days, the little top, the cargo part of the rocket has been orbiting the Earth playing catch-ups with the International Space Station. Yep. And so this evening at 9.20, it'll be, it's a typical rendezvous, but we're sort of choosing the Canada arm to capture the, the vehicle and bring it into the station. So that happens this evening. And then on Friday itself is the expected time for us to be plugged in and started. Okay. Do you get to watch the transfer live? 
Yeah, that's right. So I, we've just tweeted it out and popped it on our website so that other people can enjoy it. It's actually quite a beautiful thing to watch because you've obviously got the Earth as a backdrop um, and you're looking out from the International Space Station. So it is actually visually an amazing thing to watch. So Fantastic. you can just head over to our website to, if you want to check it out. So it's cubebrighter.com slash launch. Excellent. Well, I'll be doing that. I'll also retweet it too and get it out to our Astrophys listeners. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Now, would you like to tell us about the next challenge for your teams at CubeRider? Sure. So for, for us, this year was really getting out into schools, making sure that we've got the right idea of what needs to happen, making sure we're solving the problem in the right way and in, and in a good way for teachers and in a meaningful way for, for students. And so we've kind of, now that we've got that down pat, we are just trying to grow our footprint, expand throughout Australia, and really maximise our impact on as many students as possible. So the next big challenge is that it's a new phase for, for CubeRider, where it's, where it's growth, which is, which is different. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, congratulations, Solange Kunin, CEO of CubeRider. You're doing amazing and inspirational work there and feeding great science into classrooms in Australia. It's a magnificent task that you've undertaken and will certainly follow your success after success as you move forward. Okay. That was Solange Kunin from the CubeRider project. If you want to join this project or just find out what's happening with CubeRider, go to CubeRider.com. Hello, Nadezhda. Привет, Brendan. I'm sorry I was not around last week. It was very busy in our household in the lead up to Christmas and I had many students to advise before they went on holidays. Yes, it's pretty crazy over here too, Nadeshta. At least we're not too hot here yet. No 40 degree plus days yet. Well, I'm not bragging, Brendan, but we had minus 20 a few nights ago. Ochenolodna, very cold. Well, better you than me, Nadeshta. But we missed you. Now, you were going to tell us about the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. And I've put a diagram and a link to the CSIRO description on our website at tinyearl.com forward slash astrophys. All lowercase, all one word. Thank you, Brendan. I hope you used the ESO version. Yes, I did. All good. I would recommend that listeners have the diagram in front of them as you explain it tinyearl.com forward slash astrophys. Now the microphone's all yours. Spasiba. First a word on how we classify stars. Our spectral classification system was designed by astronomer Annie Jump Cannon. What a wonderful name. Who was born in Dover, Delaware in 1863. She studied physics and astronomy and graduated at Wesley College in Massachusetts and got access to the Harvard College Observatory, where, in 1896, she was hired by Edward Pickering as his assistant. Her job was to classify stars, and during her time at Harvard, Cannon developed the Harvard Spectral Classification System, which separated stars based on their spectral classes. She published her first star catalogue in 1901 
and in 1922, her stellar classification system was accepted by the International Astronomical Union, which we still use today. In total, Canon classified around 500,000 stars and discovered 300 variable stars, 5 novae and 1 spectroscopic binary system. She was amazing. Thank you, Annie Jump Cannon. Then, Inya Hertzsprung and Norris Russell independently revised and refined the plots of the temperature and luminosity of stars to develop this famous diagram around the year 1912. Now, the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, or HR diagram, is also a beautiful way of visualizing the way stars evolve. Two weeks ago, I told you how the mass of a star determines its fate over its lifetime. Today, we look in detail at the HR diagram. Basic HR diagram is a temperature versus luminosity plot on two axes. The horizontal axis is going from very hot blue stars on the far left and moving over to cooler orange stars and then more red stars on the extreme right. And the vertical axis is luminosity or how bright the stars appears to us. So, in the upper left-hand corner of the diagram, we have stars that are very bright and very blue, very short-lived and very hot. For example, my favorite star of all time is Eta Carina. It's way up in that top left-hand corner, and it is radiating at 40,000 degrees Kelvin, just before it goes supernova. And... In the bottom right-hand corner, we have cooler, dimmer red stars, like the nearest stars to our sun, which is Proxima Centauri, which is a red dwarf star, which will live another 4 trillion years, or nearly 300 times the current age of the universe. And it is only 3,000 degrees Kelvin. So, the most obvious feature of this plot of the stars is an S-shaped curve that runs from top left to bottom right. This is called the main sequence, and most stars lie on this curve. And depending on their mass, some stars branch off to become supergiants and go nova or supernova, while others will become yellow or red giants. There is also a region below the main sequence where white dwarfs reside. Now what I like most is that if you also know the mass of a star and you're able to plot its point of its temperature and luminosity on the diagram, you can tell what reactions are occurring inside the star, the exact characteristics of its complete history, and what's most likely to be its fate. So the HR diagram 
is very useful when you apply it to many stars in a particular galaxy. And then you can say a lot about the evolution of that galaxy or globular cluster or open cluster. And then you can go on and study whole groups of galaxies. So the HR diagram is one of the most powerful tools used by astronomers and especially astronomy students and even by cosmologists. We make our students study many different types of populations of stars and use the HR diagram to hone their intellectual skills and their ability to analyze the life cycles of many different stars and galaxies. Thank you, Brennan. Пока. No, до That's right, Nadezhda. We are taking a four-week break from our Astrophys podcast and going down the beach. We'll talk again in the new year in February. I hope you have happy holidays. До свидания. You too, Brennan. До свидания. And now we cross over to Adelaide to catch up with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How are you going? Very well, thank you. Let's get stuck into it. What's up in the sky this week? What's up in the sky this week? Well, we have something, the standard planets looking beautiful in lines and catching up with the moon. We've got something special I'm going to talk about shortly, but before I get on to the special thing, let's talk about the ordinary stuff. Yep. Once again, if you're looking out in the evening sky, shortly after sunset, you'll see Venus blazing across the horizon, being the most obvious bright thing in the sky aside from the sun and the moon. As twilight falls, if you're able to see Mars just above it, again, Mars has faded enormously from its glory days earlier this year when it was off at opposition, but still it's in a very star-poor region. So it's, it's the bright uh, uh, orange thing that's in an area otherwise void of stars about a handspan or so away from Venus. Sadly, Mercury, which has been a feature of the evening solar sky for the past two weeks, has vanished into the twilight, so we don't have Mercury joining us. Uh, it will uh, turn up in the morning sky in January. Yep. So during the week, you can watch Venus track across the background stars again. Venus is now also in a fairly fair uh, starport area of the sky at the moment. And you will find uh, Venus will be tracking across the constellation of Capricornus, and Capricornus is, is uh, fairly dim, but between the 27th and the 28th, Venus passes past the two brightest stars in Capricornus. The brighter of the two, Delta Capricornii, rejoices in the name of Deneb Del- Algeti. Yep. Uh, and this tracking past, taking the same path that Mars took uh, a couple of weeks ago. So on the 28th, you'll be able to see a re- relatively bright star not far from Venus. Mars itself, I'll, I'll come to Mars in a second. If you're in the morning course, you'll, uh, you'll be able to see Jupiter very close to the bright star Sabita. Now, Jupiter's been rising higher and higher in the sky in the early morning, and now it's high enough that it's worthwhile getting a telescope out before twilight and having a look at uh, Jupiter. So it's high up above, above the muck and the thermal t- uh, turmoil of the horizon to, to have a look at. And you'll see some nice uh, Jupiter moon events over the, uh, the week. On the 23rd, the, the Jupiter is 
visited by the waning moon. It's almost a crescent. It will be roughly a hand span above the moon in the sky. If we go on a little bit further in the morning, on the 28th, around at the same time, Venus is very close to El Yeti. You'll be able to see Saturn arising from the glow of the broad horizon. Yep. Uh, if you've got a, a fairly flat level horizon without too many big trees or buildings in the way, it should be relatively easy to pick up Saturn in the early dawn. Half an hour before sunrise, you might also be able to see the thin crescent moon just below Saturn. So the wind clear horizon, that'll be something very nice to see in the morning. What are the rings of Saturn like at this moment? A lot of the rings of Saturn are like at the moment, opening up more and more. They're still not at a maximum tilt, but they're opening up more and more. Unfortunately, because Saturn is so close to the horizon, it'll be about another month before it's worthwhile putting a telescope on it. Something to look forward to. Yeah, that's something very, very good to look forward to. Now, speaking of things worthwhile looking at a telescope, the Comet 45P, on the names that I can't possibly pronounce, <laughs> it's around about magnitude 8.7 at the moment. It's a bit of a difficult target because even though it's theoretically bright enough to be seen in good strong binoculars, and I think reinforce the idea of strong, you'll need at least 10 by 50s and yep. be out under very dark skies to have a chance to pick that up. But it is observable in modest telescopes. The problem being, of course, that we've got a very narrow window between the beginning of astronomical twilight when the sky is fully dark and when the comet is too low to the horizon to really pick up unless you've got a a telescope is pointing straight down into the horizon arc. Right. It's worth having a go at if you've got a, a, a telescope and if you've got a good clear western horizon where there's not too many trees and, and uh, buildings in the way again. 45P is uh, also uh, travelling through Capricornius at the moment, uh, following along the path of uh, Venus, and it's relatively easy to find. In the triangle that forms Capricorn is bounded by pairs of bright stars, and so it's almost in the middle between the star Beta Capricorn and the star Psi Capricorn, yep. or Capricorni. So if you cast your eye between those two stars uh, under uh, relatively low power, you should be able to uh, pick it up. Um, with, uh, pick it up if you've got good dark skies, and then uh, with decent telescopic magnification, you should be able to see it as a, uh, a nice fuzzy dot. There's some really nice photographs coming out at the moment of it with a long, thin tail. But again, you've really got to wait until the sky is fully dark and you've got a narrow window where you can pick up the tail in dark skies. It's also glowing green at the moment, green being the uh, light that's emitted by uh, dicarbon when it's excited by ultraviolet radiation. So it's looking uh, quite nice in uh, images. They're the fairly ordinary things that are going on. The special thing I, I promised is that Mars is going to have a very close meeting with Neptune. Ah. On the 31st of this month, Mars and Neptune will be in the same uh, high-powered, high or the same low-power low wide-field telescope field. Yep. And on the 1st, they're only going to be six arc minutes apart, which means they fit in together quite nicely in a high-powered telescope lenders. So now, of course, they'll be visible, in fact, even in, in binoculars. Again, you have to be somewhere really dark, even though uh, Neptune's on the order of magnitude 8, which is theoretically the limiting magnitude of 10 by 50 binoculars, you'll find that uh, you really need dark skies to Neptune up. Yes. But if you cast your eyes over the area where Neptune and Mars are, 
really Neptune and Mars are, are fairly easy to pick up. They're the brightest, they're the two brightest things in that field, brighter than the, the, the uh, uh, nearby stars. So, and of course, on the 31st, Mars and Neptune are the two closest objects together. And on the 1st, they're really, really close. In binoculars, Neptune will be a colourless dot. Yes. Uh, and Mars will be bright, uh, bright dot. You'll probably be able to see a disc if you've got with binoculars and you've got them fairly steady. Again, if you really want to pick uh, Neptune up, you've got to have your binoculars set up on uh, some sort of stand, such as a camera tripod with a special adapter or leaning against something solid like a table, although this probably involves kneeling and doing your back in a bit. We've mentioned those tripod adapters before. They're only about $8 on eBay. Yeah, yeah, uh, very, very good. And if you do check to see that you've got the adapter on your actual binoculars itself because they screw into the, uh, yep. the binoculars, make sure you've got the adapter hole on binoculars. But if you've got a tripod, get one of these things. It will make your life so much better. Neptune and Mars sounds like a great challenge for the next month. Yes, yes. You've got a telescope and uh, a, a reasonably high-power eyepiece on the first. You'll be able to see the disk of Mars very easily and you should be able to pick up the disk of Neptune. Again, unless you've got a really high-powered scope, Neptune's disk will be very, very hard to discern. But even with modest telescopes, uh, you should be able to tell that uh, Neptune is more than just a star uh, with a high-powered eyepiece. How strong a telescope would you need to see the colour of Neptune? You're probably looking around about an eight-inch scope. For, uh, if, you, if, if you've got good visual acuity, you might be able to pick it up on a six-inch scope. But uh, I'd say you need at least an eight-inch scope to pick yep. up the colour of Neptune reasonably well. It just being a big enough white bucket to pull in enough light to, to see the to see the colouring of it. Okay, thanks. Today's tangent is going to be about Uranus. Okay. Uh, we, we be, we've just been talking about uh, Neptune and Mars and seeing uh, seeing Neptune together and talking about the sorts of telescopes you would need to see the colour of Neptune. What sort of scope do you think you would need to see the rings around Uranus? 14-inch? Well, that's, that's, that's really uh, enthusiastic. Until recently, the all-time title holder for seeing Neptune's rings by amateurs was an 80-centimetre scope at Pictumini. Uh, at but quite recently, a pair of Australian amateur astronomers has managed to pick up uh, the rings of Uranus using a 50-centimetre amateur scope. Now, Having said that, 50 centimetres is roughly 20 inches. This is not your ordinary amateur telescope. No. So it's, it's a quite a substantial piece of kit, and they were using a, a CCD camera with uh, good uh, infrared sensitivity, um, and they took uh, a 15-minute um, uh, video exposures with uh, five frames per second, and I'll leave you to work out exactly how many uh, individual images that was yep. uh, to, to and stack them and with that they were able to bring out uh, the rings of Uranus uh, which is quite a uh, substantial achievement for amateurs. Uh, Phil, uh, uh, Phil Miles did the actual imaging and uh, 
uh, uh, Anthony Wesley, who's a bit of a legend in uh, telescopic imaging, did the image reduction uh, campaign by both Phil and Anthony to uh, to actually pick up these rings. Uh, typically, the rings are picked up in professional one meter or larger scopes using special methane filters to optimize the uh, imaging of the rings over the planet. Of course, once that uh, came out, Damien Peach, who was another legend in the uh, imaging world, went back and had a look at some of his images and found that he managed to pick up uh, the rings of, of Uranus using a, uh, a smaller scope. He was uh, using a, a 36 uh, centimetre scope, with, uh, which roughly translates out to 16 inches. Yes. Uh, and again, a special uh, CCD camera, which had uh, a lot more infrared sensitivity. So this is, this is not to uh, take away from uh, Phil and Anthony's uh, achievement, but we've, so we can see that amateurs can do quite amazing things with kit that's a lot, uh, a lot more minimal than the professional kit. And picking up the rings for Uranus is a, um, a major milestone for amateurs the world over. And this comes back, of course, this is the, this is the Astrophysics podcast. And I keep on coming back to the sorts of things that amateurs can do well beyond just looking at the things and saying they're pretty. And here's another example of something that amateurs, advanced amateurs to be sure, but here's another example of something that amateurs can do that really pushes the limit and allows, uh, allows amateurs to make uh, very useful contributions to understanding of, uh, of astronomy. Oh, we love that citizen science that's happening all over the place, Ian. Now, yeah. what, what's the magnitude of Uranus? At the moment, it's magnitude 6.1. If you've got really good eyesight, you've got a really uh, nice dark sky sight, you, you can see Uranus with your unaided eye. That's amazing. Uh, at, at the moment, it's a fairly good binocular target. For those of you who are interested, if you uh, wander out after the sky is fully dark, look up towards Aries, which is a very uh, unprepossessing un triangle at the best of times. But if you look towards uh, Aries, you will see the triangle of Aries. If you follow that triangle up, you'll see, if you draw a line straight through that, that very flat triangle of Aries, you'll see a line of three stars which represent the uh, dimmer stars and Pisces. And if you uh, then take a set of, uh, look at that with a set of binoculars, at the third third star in that three stars of Pisces forms a triangle with uh, two dimmer stars, and the star at the apex is the planet Uranus. And again, it's very, it's, it's very easy to pick up in binoculars. Even under light polluted skies, you'll be able to pick up quite nicely. And on, in even quite small telescopes, you'll be able to pick up the fact that it's a disc, it might be a very exciting disc, uh, it'll be just a disc, but you'll be able to pick up it's a disc. And a large, uh, uh, large amateur telescopes will be able to pick up uh, uh, some degree of discness and even detail uh, and, uh, and the moons. So if you're, if you're an amateur with a 12-inch uh, 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 scope, uh, once upon a time, the, the concept of an amateur with a 12-inch uh, telescope would be unthinkable. It would if you had a, had a, a six-inch uh, type of scope, you were pretty good. And if you had an eight-inch scope, you were you were the bee's knees. But these days, people uh, twelve, four-inch scopes are well within range of most of many amateur astronomers. So those uh, those sorts of scopes, you'll be able to pick up uh, your latest 
Yes, very, very nicely. Fantastic. Sounds like a wonderful challenge over the summer months. And for our Northern Hemisphere listeners, you've just got to rug up and make sure that you, <laughs> <laughs> your lenses and you keep everything warm and not frosting over. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that yourself, you don't freeze. Whereas in Australia, we have to worry about heat stroke and mosquitoes. This is one problem with doing astronomy in summer in Australia. Even though it's very pleasant to get out, you can set up your telescope without wearing 14 layers of thermal insulation. The, the heat is, is quite often so great that your sky will never be still, and uh, it makes it very hard to do planetary astronomy. This is why opposition, planetary opposition occur around summer. Uh, it's sad for us that the, uh, the planets will never be very high above the horizon, and the atmospheric turbulence is usually so great that uh, it's really hard to get decent still images. Fantastic, Ian. Well, the message we'll be giving to everyone in the Southern Hemisphere is to get out there and enjoy these dark summer skies, whether you're just using your eyes or binoculars or a small scope or a, one of those larger amateur scopes you were talking about. Get out yeah. there and have a good look. Very definitely. From Australia, we've we've lost the core of the galaxy. Sagittarius uh, has set, but you're getting uh, Orion and Orion's belt. Sirius, the uh, the uh, Pleiades to the north, and the head of Taurus, the Hyades, is very beautiful and fantastic. Just watch or run through with pair of binoculars. And to the south, you're having uh, Puppis and Vela. Uh, and parts of Carina rearing up from the uh, from the horizon with a wealth of uh, small clusters that are, are really brilliant to have a look in binoculars. In fact, even in binoculars, if you go to the sword uh, of Orion, um, uh, the uh, you can you can pick up the uh, nebula in the sword of Orion just with binoculars. It's, it won't look anything like humble photographs. Nothing ever does, but it's still something beautiful to look at. Uh, and then you, then you can sort of start off over from the Orion's Nebula all the way over to the clusters uh, above the um, the southern horizon. Uh, you can spend a long time just sitting out with a blanket and industrial strength in the secret colour, um, <laughs> uh, watching uh, the uh, beautiful skies in the summer. Very good, Ian. And after we've taken our four-week January holiday, Ian, we'll come back next year and we might talk about working through the messier objects, talking about all the different apps that are available to help beginners learn what's up in the sky. Also, we'll come back in February, Comet 45P, uh, maybe put on a decent show for us. So that's something to look forward to in the, uh, in the new year. Fantastic, Ian. Well, we'll sign off now. Thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Thank you very much, Brendan. And may I say to everyone, have a very good Christmas and New Year. And keep on looking up. The uh, Christmas skies will be relatively moon-free, lovely and dark. So lots of lots of nice things to see. And if you're going out for the New Year's Eve celebrations, watching, watching fireworks, Take time to look at the fireworks in the sky along with the fireworks that humans have made. Thank you very much, Ian. And that was Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. And here is our Astrophys News for Thursday, 22nd of December, our final episode for 2016. Data collected by the Dawn spacecraft reveals a solar system's largest asteroid, Ceres, is covered in ice. 
Japan launches its space garbage truck into orbit that consists of an electrodynamic stainless steel and aluminium mesh aimed to clean up space junk. Using the gravitational microlensing method, astronomers have found a new gas giant exoplanet, nearly three times more massive than Jupiter. NASA successfully launches eight satellites via a rocket dropped from a plane at 40,000 feet to study hurricanes. ESA and Thales Alenia Space finally signed a contract that confirms a complete go-ahead for building ExoMars 2020. Studies reveal that the intense flare detected in 2015, earlier reviewed as the brightest supernova, was actually a black hole destroying a star. And since we're publishing our final episode for 2016 on this day, the December solstice, a little bit of information about solstices. Today, the 22nd of December, is both the winter and summer solstice. In the Northern Hemisphere, the December solstice is the winter solstice and the shortest day of the year. In the Southern Hemisphere, it's the summer solstice and the longest day of the year because equinoxes and solstices are opposite in different hemispheres. Most people count the whole day as the December solstice. However, the solstice is actually a specific moment when the sun is exactly overhead the Tropic of Capricorn. This is the second solstice of the year. They happen twice a year, once on about June 21 and then again on December 21 or 22. For the June solstice, the sun is directly overhead the Tropic of Cancer and the December solstice, the sun is directly over the Tropic of Capricorn. And the date varies a little bit. The last December 23rd solstice was 1903 and will not happen again until 2303. The term solstice comes from a Latin word, solstitium, meaning the sun stands still. This is because on this day, the sun reaches its southernmost position as seen from the earth. The sun seems to stand still at the Tropic of Capricorn and then reverses its direction, well, appears to reverse its direction. In the Northern Hemisphere, astronomers and scientists use the December solstice as the start of a winter season, which ends on the March equinox. For meteorologists, however, winter began three weeks ago on December the 1st. Many cultures around the world hold feasts and celebrate holidays. For example, Christmas. Uh, this... <laughs> It's believed that this date was chosen to offset pagan celebrations of Saturnalia. The Feast of Jule was a pre-Christian festival observed in Scandinavia. Saturnalia was an ancient Roman festive season. In the modern day, there's many celebrations across the planet. Happy holidays, everyone. See you next year on the 9th of February when we return with Dr. Amanda Bauer. She's a research astronomer at Australia's largest optical observatory, the Australian Astronomical Observatory. We're really looking forward to meeting her in our first episode for 2017. Happy holidays, everyone. Radio Wave.